Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Hoover, Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Nottingham, about his new book, Ibn Taymiyyah, published by One World Academic in 2019 as part of the Makers of the Muslim World series. Ibn Taymiyyah is one of the most prolific and influential Islamic thinkers to date, and was even the only pre-modern Muslim author cited in the 9-11 report. His supporters and detractors alike have engaged his scholarship extensively for hundreds of years, and Hoover's monograph, Ibn Taymiyyah, published in 2019, in English as part of One World's Makers of the Muslim World series, therefore offers an invaluable contribution to existing literature on Ibn Taymiyyah. In our interview, Professor Hoover and I discussed the reasons for Ibn Taymiyyah's popularity, including his time in prison and controversial views on marriage, interfaith relations, and mysticism. Hoover's monograph goes beyond a simple introduction to Ibn Taymiyyah's life and works, and instead explores the prolific thinker in great detail, in terms of his own scholarship as well as reception history. Unsurprisingly, Hoover's previous scholarship on Ibn Taymiyyah, including a monograph on theodicy, as well as several articles that explore Ibn Taymiyyah's thought broadly, informs the current work by allowing the author to write from an already expert vantage point. The bibliography is extensive and complements Hoover's already extant bibliography of Taymiyyah Studies Scholarship, hosted on his personal website. And the book is sure to appeal to a broad range of audiences, including journalists, political scientists, and religion scholars. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor John Hoover. Good morning, Professor Hoover. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. So before we start talking about your book proper, we like to ask our guests to say a little bit about how they got interested in the field. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies and Ibn Taymiyyah in particular? Uh, Right. Yeah. So I took a class uh, in my undergraduate in Middle Eastern history, focusing on the early modern period, Ottomans and Mughals and Safavids, and that opened my eyes to uh, a whole new field. I did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering. And then I, um, in terms of historical study, then I did a degree in theology and ethics and uh, took a number of classes in Islamic studies. I read a lot of Montgomery Watt and Marie Schimmel and got particularly interested in Islamic uh, theology, Kalam. Uh, then uh, I worked, I uh, taught and uh, studied Arabic a bit in Egypt uh, in the mid-90s. And it's there, I, I like to walk around looking in bookshops and looking at the books on offer on the, on the sidewalks. I found a book uh, published back in the 80s or 90s, I believe, on the jinn and the demons or a jinn with And the back of the book had a whole thing on uh, why did God create Iblis, or Satan, and it was lifted straight out of Ibn Taymiyyah's Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, the student Ibn Taymiyyah Jalziyah, is lifted right out of one of Ibn Taymiyyah Jalziyah's works. So 
in my readings about Islamic theology, I hadn't really encountered the, uh, this approach to, you know, giving specific reasons for why God would create the devil. And one thing led to another. I did my PhD at the University of Birmingham um, on Ibn Taymiyyah's theodicy. Uh, you know, why did God create uh, evil if God is just and wise and all-powerful? And that turned into my first book, um, Ibn Taymiyyah's Theodicy of Perpetual Optimism. So, yeah, that's how I got interested in Ibn Taymiyyah and, and the field of Islamic studies. So in addition to Shimmel and Watt, are there, could you say, some influential mentors or authors that you've encountered over the years? Yeah, I, two figures stand out. Um, one is my PhD supervisor at the University of Birmingham, David Thomas. He's a meticulous textual scholar and, and very rigorous in his questioning of sources. And so working with him over the course of the PhD was really good, good training. Uh, and then also um, Yahya Misho has been really important in that he looked at a number of my earlier writings and gave me really good feedback. I also went to visit him in Oxford when he, he moved to Oxford about the same time I began my PhD in Birmingham. So I visited him a couple of times and, and um, went to some of his lectures and, and learned a lot from him uh, in those years. So uh, both very meticulous, exacting textual scholars, and, and they, that had a really you know, profound impact on me. Mm-hmm. And so, especially given that this is a, a book that reflects earlier scholarship of yours, and you've had a lot of time to reflect and think about the field and Ibn Taymiyyah, what, what was some of your process like when you're trying to figure out how to structure the book and how long to make it and that sort of thing? Right. Well, how long to make it was uh, specified by the, um, the publisher. So these books are to be between 50 and 55,000 words. And uh, so that was uh, 55,000 was the outer limit. So that, that was quite, yeah, it sets a pretty demanding pace with terms of covering material. The, um, I wanted to get across a sense of Ibn Taymiyyah's, um, his utilitarian thinking um, or pragmatic thinking, depends how you look at it, but he's always weighing up the benefits and detriments of, of acts or of, um, you know, whether we should do this or that, especially when, I mean, he believes that the Islamic law, that Islamic law or Sharia, to be more specific, is the most beneficial path. But then there's questions of what if you don't know this, what if you lack knowledge of certain aspects of the Sharia or you can't keep the Sharia because you're um, you're stuck in a kind of sinful or, or less than ideal circumstance. So then you need to weigh up the benefits and detriments of your acts or your decisions in light of the circumstances. So I wanted to convey that, that that's really permeating his whole thinking. So in terms of the structure of the book, the first two chapters look at his biography and there I try to bring out um, where I can you know how he's calculating as it were he's, he's making pragmatic decisions about the best course of action um, and then in the chapters let's see three through six it's by and large his, his ethics and his view of Sharia 
And there he articulates very clearly in different places that he believes the Sharia is the most beneficial course of human worship, really. I mean, I, that's the major theme of the book, really, is worship. That permeates everything. He's always trying to make his actions and his thoughts serve ibadah um, or worship of God. And he advocates that for everybody else as the best course of action, the most beneficial course of action. So the, the center of the book, chapters three through six, uh, look at his ethics, broadly speaking. And then chapters seven and eight look at his theology, uh, you know, how God is, um, what's the relationship between God and the world, both spatially and temporally. And then the last chapter is how God relates to human beings in a moral sense. But underlying the whole book, there's this idea that God, that I'm sorry, that Ibn Taymiyyah is, um, you know, he, he's a, he's working practically. So his theology is not an attempt to discover the ultimate truths of the universe or the ultimate truths of God, but rather how can we best worship God? So it's a more of a, a legal or juristic process of theology than it is a kind of seeking for the ultimate truth. So I try to, that's the, the, the basic structure of the book. Mm-hmm. So you've described Ibn Taymiyyah as a, a very thoughtful figure. And of course, he he wrote numerous, numerous volumes of various things. Could you give our listeners a sense of why this figure has been famous over the years? And then we can get into talking about his life a little bit. But I think it would be helpful to, this is not just a random person. This is a very influential figure. And why, why, why is that in general, just like for Muslims and non-Muslims across the world? So he was famous in his own time because he was um, a very formidable figure. I mean, he, he spoke his mind and people respected that he was a great scholar, whether they agreed with him or not. Um, he was quite good at arguing his points, very thorough. Um, and then to add to that, his views were often a little bit on the margin, like on God's attributes, not just a little bit on the margin, but they were outside. Eventually, they came to be seen as outside orthodoxy within the Mamluk uh, Empire. Mamluk Empire being the uh, Mamluks were ruling in Syria and, and Egypt. Um, and then he had views on divorce, which put him outside the, the mainstream views on visiting graves, put him outside the mainstream. So he, he became notorious, if you will, uh, for his religious views. Um, not that many people thought they were uh, worth following, but he created a stir by advocating them and, and insisting on them. Uh, then additionally, he, um, uh, became well known in his time because of his, um, uh, efforts against the Mongols, his, so he, yeah, I mean, he, he became a source of envy actually, cause he would, uh, he had access to the halls of power, uh, as he advocated for, um, that the Mamluks should go out and fight the Mongols who were invading, let's see, his Mongol invasions, particularly 1299 to 1303 that he uh, was instrumental in, in rousing support for. So then in, he really wasn't that famous for a couple of centuries, um, but he was known. Um, but it's the uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab in in uh, in the 1700s, um, and then in the night in the 1800s, you have this, the emergence of uh, Salafi figures, 
And then in the, the uh, 1900s, uh, 20th century, you have um, the, uh, we call it the modernist Salafi movement of, of Rashid Rida, of course, Muhammad Abdu. Muhammad Abdu wasn't very much involved with Ibn Taymiyyah, but Rashid Rida was advocating his, it was helping to publish his materials and so on. And then you have the, um, the contemporary Salafi movement, which is uh, promoting his writings and ideas on a, a wide scale. And then, of course, there are the um, uh, jihadists who use his writings that uh, bring, his, bring his name to the attention of uh, security officials in various and sundry countries, um, both in the Islamic world and outside the Islamic world. So he's, he's known for a lot of different reasons by a lot of different people. And I think it's the the power of his ideas, the courageous uh, things he did during his own lifetime, whether you agree with him or not, that have made him quite an attractive figure for a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And so we can get into some of those specific controversial ideas in some more depth soon. But could you first give us a snapshot of Ibn Taymiyyah's life as, as he lived in various places? Right. So... Uh, I find it convenient to divide his life into two major um, periods, um, which correspond to the first the division of the first two chapters in the book. And the first period is um, from 1263 to 1303, so basically from the time he was born to the um, uh, time he was 40, till he turned 40. Then the second period is from uh, 1303 to 1328, the last. 25 years of his life. He died when he was 65 years old. Um, and this is when he was um, most embroiled in internal religious issues. So back to the first period, he was born in Haran in uh, what's today southeastern Turkey. Um, and then he fled from, his family with him fled from the Mongols uh, when he was six years old. They went to Damascus and he was a very precocious student and became um you know, a well-known figure uh, in his 20s even. And he was involved in various uh, minor uh, controversies uh, up through, you know, the 1290s. Then in 1299, you have the first of the three Mongol invasions of Syria. And so, as I said before, 1299 to 1303, we have three Mongol invasions, and Ibn Taymiyyah is uh, very intimately involved in writing fatwas to um, support Ma- Mamluk resistance to the uh, Mongols. The problem here is that the Mongols had converted to Islam just prior to beginning these invasions. Um, and so can the Mamluk uh, Mamluks and the people of Damascus as Muslims themselves go out and fight fellow Muslims? And Ibn Taymiyyah said yes, because uh, these Mongols, they have many faults, one of which is that they're fighting fellow Muslims, so they shouldn't be doing that. So that justified um, resisting them. So that takes us up to 1303. Then the second period of his life, um, he comes away from the Mongol invasions with a a profound sense that one of the problems that caused the or one of the problems that led to the invasions was that the uh, Mamluk society, as an Islamic society, had uh, regressed. It was in decay. It was it was corrupt. And so the rest of his life, the next 25 years, is basically a campaign to, uh, you know, point the right, or point as he saw it, the right 
point out the right Islam and, and argue for a, a reformed Islam as he understood it. So, uh, yeah, briefly, so 1303 to um, 1306, he remained in Damascus. Um, at this point, he particularly is irritating Sufis with what he's saying. He turns against Ibn Arabi. It's interesting that up until this point, he appreciated reading Ibn Arabi. He says that clearly. He uh, read the Futuhat al-Makiyah of Ibn Arabi, the Meccan openings, with appreciation. But then he read Ibn Arabi's Fusus um, al-Hikam, uh, the Bezels of Wisdom, and that turned him against Ibn Arabi. And one thing led to another. He got uh, called out for um, uh, corporealism and God's attributes as a kind of way to get at his anti-Sufism. He was called to Cairo, uh, put in prison. So he was in prison most of the time from 1306 to uh, 1310. Then 1310, the political tide in Egypt turned a bit. He was out of prison for another three years. Uh, he's in Egypt for another three years. And then uh, 1313, he returned to Damascus and uh, taught, wrote, and he was back in prison in 1320 to 1321 over issues on divorce law. Uh, and then 1326 till his death in 1328, two-year period, he was back in prison over issues of grave visitation. So we don't know too much about his life, you know, apart from these controversies in that latter period. But that, that takes us up to the end. He died in prison then in, in 1326. Mm -hmm. No, 1328. 1328, right? Yeah. And so he so he, he went to prison a few times, and you've mentioned a couple of the reasons. Uh, could, could, you say, could you say more about the attributes uh, issue? What was so controversial about his view towards God's attributes? Perhaps it's easiest to start with the, the Ashadi theology that he was opposing. Um, a big issue here was uh, attributes of God that the Ashadis dealt, or, uh, considered to be corporeal. So God having a hand, God uh, sitting on his throne, um, you know, implying some kind of corporeality or temporality as well in, in God. And Dibni Taimiyah's mind, when the Ashadi said, well, it can't be what it says in the text. It can't be that God has a hand. It can't be that God sits on the throne. So we have to reinterpret it. The Ashadi say we have to reinterpret it uh, to mean, for example, God's hand is God's power and God sitting on the throne symbolizes God's sovereignty. He says, well, but the Quran says that God has a hand. Of course, we don't mean that God has a hand like we have a hand, but it still means God has a hand. And so we can't just wipe that away. So that, that's the core of the issue. Um, and there's a lot more. And he, he spends a lot of time uh, working this out, especially when he's in Egypt in prison. He wrote two major works um, where he, he's obviously defending himself against the charges that were brought against him um, that put him in prison in the first place in 1306. Um, but that's the, that's the core of the issue. So he denied early on that he was a corporealist, uh, eventually came to the position that the Quran doesn't say God has a body and doesn't say God doesn't have a body uh, or, or bodily members. And he gets that from Ibn Rushd, actually, Abu Royce, uh, who says the same thing. And 
I we don't know quite yet how that works out in his later writings, but he very clearly is trying to let the Quran speak on its own terms, and he wants to respect the the radical difference between the created world and God, but he's not willing to say like the Ashadis do, oh, God's hand means God's power, God sitting on the throne means God's sovereignty, and it doesn't mean he's he doesn't want to say that the Quran doesn't mean what it seems to say. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned uh, a controversy surrounding divorce oaths. Could you say something about that as well? Right. Divorce oaths. Uh, this is sticky. So um, Yusuf Rapapur has done the main work on the divorce oaths in Mamluk society and Ibn Taymiyyah in particular. Um, so the idea here is that uh, men would solidify their oaths in Mamluk society um, on pain of triple divorce and even their oaths to the Sultan. So basically, if I break my oath uh, in the market or my, break my oath to the um, military or to the Sultan, uh, then my wife is divorced three times, which of course separates uh, the woman from the man definitively. It's a it's final. He can't go back to her. So uh, this is quite a, a severe thing. Uh, and Ibn Taymiyyah was uh, worried. Well, he was very, he, he found it very negative that a woman was completely separated from husband and she would have to actually go through a, a tahlil process. She'd have to marry some other fellow and, and then there'd have to be a separation and divorce from him before she could go back to her first wife. And this, of course, Ibn Taymiyyah's mind was defeating the purpose of marriage, uh, if I remember the details of, of what was going on there correctly. Um, so he was of the view that one divorce pronouncement, talak now, we're talking about the man's unilateral right to divorce, that three pronouncements of talak at one occasion only counted as one. So, um, and this has been picked up in, in some modern um uh, legal codes like in Egypt and I think Morocco uh, and and taken on board. But that's modern reform. That's not any time he has time. So in any time he has time, he's basically undermining the whole um, structure of of allegiance and, you know, how does one stand by one's word? And if swearing uh, an oath on pain of triple divorce didn't really mean that your wife would be divorced if you broke the oath, then that reduces the power of the oath. Does that make sense? Uh, it it reduces the the force in society. So Ibn Taymiyyah is basically undermining the whole uh, societal structure in a with his uh, with his with his view that um, three divorces count only as one if said on one occasion. Mm-hmm. And staying with controversy for a little bit longer and sort of a selfish question, but relevant as well, because one, one of the reasons I got interested in Ibn Taymiyyah personally was looking at his encounters with Sufism and also Ibn Arabi. And so since that's something you've mentioned already, could you say more too about what was Ibn Taymiyyah's relationship to Sufism? Obviously it was complex. You mentioned that he liked and didn't like things about Ibn Arabi. But as a, a question more broadly, because often he's painted as generally anti-Sufi, which that characteristic lacks complexity. So could you say more about how he connected to this tradition, what he liked, what he didn't like? Okay, so um, 
one thing I found in in researching the book, and I had had indications prior to starting work on the book itself, uh, is he seems to have been embedded in a Sufi culture quite deeply in his early years. Um, he knows a great deal about graves, for example. He knows a great deal about the practices that go on about, around graves. And there's one story I tell in the book where he was with um, a group of Sufis one night, uh, and they invited him to join their session of dhikr, their, their session of remembrance of God. And he he refused, and he sat off to the side. But why was he out there with them anyway um, is a question I ask myself. You know, Obviously, he associated with these people. And was, it the, was that the moment when he withdrew from that kind of practice? Uh, we don't know. But um, he, he knows a great deal about Sufi practices and, and uh, ideas. And as I said before, he read him not to be with appreciation. So he's coming out of that background, it seems to me, with a, a increasingly a cr- increasing sense that the Sufi practices, and the Sufi beliefs are undermining uh, what he considered to be a true um, practice of Islamic spirituality. So a true practice of Islamic spirituality includes recitation of the Quran. Uh, it includes meditating on on um, the you know, divine the, the the nature of God and, and things like this, but it does not include repetition. And this is where he starts the criticism. He doesn't include repetition of like the name of Allah. So in the dhikr or in the remembrance of God, um, or in a halka or not halka, um, when Sufis engage in their dhikr sessions, they might just say Allah, Allah, Allah. That repetition he sees as vain. He says just repeating one word or another name of God, like. Um, Rahman, Rahman, it, it has no intellectual content. So he criticizes that. So there's lots of things in Sufism which he he starts backing out of, you might say, because he finds them leading away from the true path. So back to Ibn Arabi, uh, one thing he found in the Fusus al-Hikam, in the uh, Bezels of Wisdom, is that, as he read it, that God and the creation are the same. So this is the idea of wahdat al-wujud, or the unity of, of uh, being, or the unity of existence. He is aware that Ibn Arabi has another side, and that is that God and the universe are separate. And so Ibn Arabi, as I mentioned in the book, as a, you know, as a, a theology of ambiguity, a theology of complexity. But Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah focuses on this idea that you know God, is, God and the world are the same, there's a, a unity of existence, and he says that's just horrendous because... Among other things, it leads to um, people thinking that because God and and the world are the same thing, I can do what I want. So you get anonymism. You get a, a sense of it doesn't matter what I do because it's all divine anyway. And so he, he's very, uh, very, very critical of anything which he believes falls outside of, of the law as he understands it. He does treat Sufism as a kind of you know, it's an attempt, he, he respects it as an attempt of human beings to discern how to best to worship God. Like the law schools, uh, the Hanafis and the Hanbalis and so forth are also expressions, human expressions of how best to worship God, how best to, to follow the path of the prophet and, you know, articulations of the Sharia. Um, so Sufism is like that too. So there's some things which are acceptable and there's some things which are not. So... Um, 
what I come out with then is he's very much on board with an ethical spirituality, and Sufism has a strong ethical component. So he's on board with that as long as it stays with what he thinks is what he thinks are the limits of the law. But anything outside of that is uh, unacceptable to him, and that gives him the reputation of being anti-Sufi because he's um, against uh, a lot of Sufi practices, a lot of things that, that Sufis practice, uh, music, for example, dancing. Uh, and then when it comes to grave, uh, uh, shrine cults, grave visitation and so forth, he's against all of that because he thinks it distracts from uh, proper worship of God through praying the five uh, five praying five times a day and the uh, supererogatory prayers that are also specified in the prophetic traditions, um, that those should be focused on rather than uh, shrine religion. Mm-hmm. And in addition to Sufism, of course, we can think about other religions as ways that people try to approach God. And that's a subject that Ibn Taymiyyah wrote a bit about as well. So there's a quote Professor Hoover uh, in the God and Humanity section of the book where he says some things about Christians. And so I'll, I'll read this out loud, and then I'd be curious in your your commentary. So this is from page 135 for our listeners. And Ibn Taymiyyah writes, it's in the Jawab sahih He says that the false religion of Christians is nothing but an innovated religion which they invented after the time of Christ and by which they changed the religion of Christ. Not only that, they strayed from the law, Sharia, of Christ to what they innovated. Then, when God sent Muhammad, they rejected him. Thus, their unbelief and error came to be of two aspects, that of changing the religion of the first messenger and of rejecting the second messenger. It is like the unbelief of the Jews who changed the legal prescriptions of the Torah before God's sending Christ, and then they rejected Christ. So do you, do you have any thoughts on this passage in particular, or even more generally, why Ibn Taymiyyah was interested in writing about Christianity? Yeah, I mean, this this passage simply uh, puts down the foundations of his theology of religions, you might say, apart from Islam. Um, so he he's arguing in this text that Christians did two things wrong. One, they made up their own religion and didn't follow the religion of Christ which is a very common uh, charge within the Islamic tradition. Ibn Taymiyyah is not unique in this at all. And then secondly, of course, they rejected Muhammad because um, they had the wrong religion. If they'd been following the religion of Christ, they would have recognized Muhammad as the prophet that God sent. So, uh, and then Jews, he would, you know, there's a parallel here with the Jews, a similar thing. He's saying the Jews did much the same with Christ that Christians did with Muhammad. Um, so what he's doing here is, you know, the broadly is quite widespread within the Islamic tradition is that there is a, a correct tradition of revelation through history that reaches its culmination in the Prophet Muhammad. And that um, those who recognize that true religion will uh, become Muslims or recognize the Prophet Muhammad when they recognize it, when they see it. And then others... Um, who don't accept the Prophet Muhammad's message are obviously somehow entrapped in another religious tradition or entrapped, yeah, by, as it says in the Pitra Hadith, by what their parents taught them. Um, and so it's, yeah, this passage just illustrates his broader theology of religion. So why do you write about Christianity? I mean, that's, it's very clear. Um, 
he received a letter from a, a it was a Christian letter uh, in the year 1316, which challenged his very theology of religions by saying that um, it was suggesting that Christians have what they need within the Christian tradition, within the Christian religion. But uh, Muhammad came along for the pagan Arabs because they needed a revelation. They needed some kind of reform. And that was good for them. But Christians basically don't need Islam. And Islam is not universal. So Ibn Taymiyyah wrote this book, Jawab al-Sahih, uh, the correct answer to refute that. And he he wrote, I mean, the, the correct answer to Jawab al-Sahih is many, many times longer than this uh, short tract that he received in 1316. But this is typical of Ibn Taymiyyah. He received some kind of impetus, and then he writes a, a response to it. Um, and that's what happened here as well. And so of the many things that you researched in this book, especially given your background and already studying Ibn Taymiyyah, were there any things that struck you in particular or surprised you about researching this book? As I said before, the degree to which he was embedded in, in Sufi practices and, and beliefs early in his life, or seems to have been, that, that did jump out at me. That was the main thing, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't really think of anything else. The, the other thing that I did know before, but which really made a strong impression upon me, was the focus on worship or ibadah that comes through again and again and again, just everywhere you look. That's what he's really um, pushing toward, whether he's writing about jihad, whether he's writing about Sufism, whether he's writing about theology. Um, that's his his primary concern. I've been teaching a class on Ibn Taymiyyah for a number of years. I taught here at the University of Nottingham a class on him every other year. Um, so five times before I, I started writing the book. And I had a decent sense of what I was going to find, but the, the I can't... Re- There's also some things with respect to... I mean, I'm working on God's attributes more generally in my research apart from the book. And so I kept finding new things in that respect. But there wasn't anything major that jumped out at me, I would say. If we can jump to another one of the hot button issues around Ibn Taymiyyah, which is this concept of jihad, how how is that something that was important for him specifically during his lifetime as well as the modern period? I know you, you've, you've mentioned that his political environment was one of dealing with Mongol invasions, but what were some of the details surrounding his writings about potential violent resistance? Yeah. One, one thing, back to the previous question, one thing that did surprise me a little bit was the degree to which he saw his whole life as jihad. And I found um, it, in Ibn Abdul Hadi, the, uh, the primary biographer of Ibn Taymiyyah, he was a follower of Ibn Taymiyyah as well, uh, it says when he had his pen and paper taken away from him at the end of his life, um, he then wrote in charcoal. And in one of those uh, texts he wrote in charcoal, he he expresses his battles against Sufism, his battle or against Ibn Arabi, his battles against uh, the Ashadis, uh, not to mention the Mongols as well as the Nusaydis, or today known as the Alawis. Um, all of this is jihad. And then another thing which I found in, in the, his famous work, Siyasa Shar'iya, or um, uh, I call it Sharia Guided Policy. Uh, it's a famous book of his. 
Um, he talks briefly, very briefly, about jihad as something against the inner um, or something you do to control yourself, and it's also an outward thing. So it's not exactly the Sufi idea of the greater jihad against the self and the lesser jihad against the uh, outward opposition, but it's very similar. Um, and so Ibn Taymiyyah sees, I mean, if you want to take jihad back to the idea of struggle, I think it, it really captures his whole, his whole life vision as a struggle to um, practice Islam correctly and to articulate what that looks like. And, of course, advocate that for others and, and try to find ways in which others will actually do that. So this gets a little bit to your question of force uh, or violence. Um, he is of the view, okay, it's, there's two sides to this. First of all, there's no good reason for violence apart from religion. So, um, in other words, if, if you're fighting for, if you engage in battle to... Um, widen territory to capture resources or, or like he accuses the Mongols of simply trying to expand their empire. That's not legitimate reason, a legitimate reason for engaging in violence. The only legitimate reason for engaging in violence as far as he's concerned is if it, and you have to calculate carefully, if it can in some way benefit the overall cause of religion. And so he's not, um, in any way fanatical here. He, you need to do those calculations to his mind very carefully. But if there is um, a way in which violence can advance the cause of religion, then it becomes justified. So this opens the door to lots of calculation. And um, clearly, he calculated with respect to the Mongols that fighting them was the right thing to do. Uh, he says at least once that... The Mongol, if the Mongols were to, um, you know, to capture, or if the Mongols were to be uh, left unimpeded, the damage to religion would be far greater than the losses and the detriments in fighting them. So again, he's he's got this calculation, this idea of balancing detriments and and uh, benefits that that it's, it's more beneficial to go out and fight them than it would be to to let them just simply capture Syria and Egypt. Um. So, of course, that then leads into, um, you know, different groups today. And I make this point in the epilogue with a, an example. Different groups today come to different assessments of the political reality. Of You know, is it beneficial to engage in violence or not? And, of course, people come out on this differently. And I think that's helpful. It's not the only way to explain why we have you know, different approaches to uh, Islam and politics today among Islamists or, or activist type people. But it's one thing to consider that people make different calculations as to what's going to be effective for advancing um, religious adherence, advancing the cause of religion generally. Right. And that's obviously such a, a big topic. And given all the different things he wrote about, people have been able to interpret things in a wide variety of ways. And so the next question I have for you is kind of re reflecting on the research process in general. One thing I've noticed from reading Western scholarship, at least on Ibn Taymiyyah, is that people have a hard time writing, well, maybe not hard time, people don't necessarily write about him with a, with a balanced tone 
And I wonder what your what your sense of this is. What why why is he such a fiery figure, even for the rhetoric of the way people write about him? Or perhaps you you disagree. No, I think you put a finger on something. I mean, he's often called reactionary, um, even by you know uh, you would think dispassionate historians. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, he's, he's deeply embedded in the politics of our time. What has to say that? Um, and I don't know that there's much more to it than that. His ideas are often difficult to get one's head around. If you have, if you're coming from the study of Islam, from say, Ashadi theology or, or Shi'i theology of different, different strands of Shi'i theology. Um, he, he's, He's in a different, he thinks a bit differently. And then you have, uh, of course, the contemporary Salafis and the Saudi states and others who are advocating his ideas and not everybody appreciates the political and social positions that these people advocate. Um, So that creates a certain uh, tension. You obviously have the whole issue of oil politics. It's very deeply uh, part of this, this question. Um, and he can be quite offensive if you're on the wrong side of his, um, you know, if, if you're right in his firing line, if you're a deep adherent, let's say to Ashadi theology, you're not going to like what he says. Um, and you're going to find it really off putting and, and yeah, just completely wrong headed. So it depends what stakes you have in terms of the Islamic tradition, the contemporary politics, um, and that, that creates, I think, this kind of uh, impassioned writing style that we find in a lot of different places. Uh, and that it also, I think, with people come to reading about him, it perpetuates itself. So you read somebody who uh, says Ibn Taymiyyah is just a, you know, a crass literalist. It's hard to overcome that if you know nothing more about him than that. Oh, and then you hear he's in, you know, an inspiration to the jihadists. Um, so... You know, a couple of these comments, it can steer a scholar away from thinking about him dispassionately and more, you know, uh, fairly in terms of understanding what he's trying to say and, and taking his texts in historical context. Sure. And that's one thing I really appreciated about this book, as well as your other writings, is that your your tone about Ibn Taymiyyah compared with some other folks I have in mind is... Uh, is more more balanced is, is the word I would I would like to think of, and I think that uh, helps the reader in in a lot of different ways. And so, connected to this, uh, as we begin to conclude things, um, is what would you say are some misunderstandings that people have about Ibn Taymiyyah that were in your mind while you're writing the book, or that occurred to you after you read the book that you think would after you wrote the book, it would be particularly helpful for people to know about. Okay. Uh, so one idea that's difficult for people to get in my field and in, even in the, you know, people who write about Ibn Taymiyyah is his, uh, view of God as perpetually active, as perpetually creative, as moving even, and this goes against 
the philosophical tradition of Ibn Sina, Avicenna, the Felsafa, it goes against the the Kalam tradition, whether it's Mu'tazili, whether it's uh, Ashari, Maturidi. So Ibn Taymiyyah is of the view that God's perfection entails that God is always creating one thing or another. God is always, as I sometimes say, God is always busy. And this means this in, this uh, means that there has always been one thing or another. So it doesn't mean that any one thing in the world is eternal. So you can, I think, fairly say that Ibn Taymiyyah doesn't say that there's an eternal wor- world. The world's not eternal as such. But there has always been one world or another. And uh, this view of God doesn't fit anywhere else in the tradition easily. There are precedents for it, uh, bits and pieces. And But I think Ibn Taymiyyah, so far as I found, is the first person who put it together in a com- uh, coherent package uh, in the way I've described. There's, it's, it makes a certain sense. And that undergirds a great deal of his other thinking theologically. So that's one thing. And um, a second thing is, is he's often said to be literalistic. And I can see why people say that, but technically it's not true because he's, as has been shown in a couple different people, his, um, his way of thinking about language is, is rather close to Wittgenstein. Um, so language and meaning is a function of context. Of, it's pragmatic. It's a function of, of uh, the contextual indicators that give it its sense. So words as a famous example, the word lion. So is a lion a valiant warrior or a ferocious cat? You might say, well, everybody knows that without any contextual indicators, the word lion means ferocious cat. Ibn Taymiyyah would say, no. Uh, there's no way you can know that the word lion, L-I-O-N, means ferocious cat unless you have some kind of context. We're talking about animals in the... Um, you know, in, in sub-Saharan Africa or something like this. Um, and likewise, to know it's a ferocious warrior, or I'm sorry, a, a valiant warrior, um, you need some kind of context. And those contextual indicators give you that meaning. Without any context, the word means nothing. So the idea that words have meanings which have been coined somewhere in the past and those are the fixed meanings or the literal meaning. And then the rest of the meanings are metaphors or non, non-literal. That was the most common theory of meaning in the medieval period. And Ibn Taymiyyah goes against this with his contextual theory of meaning, which is, yeah, it's context dependent. So when he talks about God's attributes, let's say back to God's hand, um, he says, of course, God's hand is not the same as our hands. Whereas an Ashri would say, oh, God has a hand. Uh, the literal meaning of hand is a, you know, uh, in a, a limb of the body with five fingers and skin and, and flesh and muscles. Any time he said, no, no, that's, that is literalistic. And of course, God is not exactly like that. But when we talk about a hand in God, we know that already. We have contextual indicators that God is somehow different. We don't need this literal, uh, non-literal theory of meaning, we'd rather take a contextual theory of meaning. So I think it's, that's, you know, when I read people writing that Ibn Taymiyyah was literalist, it's often used to dismiss him as, you know, unthinking. 
and um, stubborn and you know all those sorts of other things that people imply when they accuse somebody of literalism. Uh, but he's technically not. So um, those are two things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. My students sometimes have said that they think I'm I'm very literal, and I say, "Oh, do you mean careful?" And so I, I appreciate your your thoughts on this word literalism because uh, I think it can be so problematic in many ways, uh, especially when someone like Ibn Tamiya has written so many different things, and his views of language, as you say, are are much more complex than what we imagine with this English term literalism, and so. As we wrap things up, I'd, I'd love to hear what kinds of projects you're working on next. But you had also mentioned that you teach a course on Ibn Taymiyyah. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, what what kinds of structures you give to it, and if this book is something that you use or plan to use in that course. So uh, I taught a class on Ibn Taymiyyah. I'm, I'm not teaching it anymore. Um, and... The way I structured it, I began with, you know, impressions about Ibn Taymiyyah in the media today, and just to get students' attention. And then I would work through, um, each week would be a different topic. The idea was to have a class where people with different divergent interests could come and find some place that would capture their attention. So there was, the first bit was on the history of the period and focused a lot on the Mongols and the uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's anti-Mongol fatwas and got into details of that. So people who are interested in, in Ibn, use of Ibn Taymiyyah today by jihadists and so forth would, would connect there. Um, I did a week on, um, I did a unit on his uh, criticisms of Sufism and I did a unit on theology, um, did a unit on law, uh, did a unit on his, um, views of Christianity, uh, and did a unit on um, Ibn Qayyim al-Jalziya, his foremost student, and then a unit on um, on uh, his contemporary, uh, the way he's been used in by different groups, you know, broadly by different revivalists and, and Salafis and, of course, the jihadists and, and so forth. So uh, students from all different backgrounds, whether it's political science or uh, people interested in theology and religion, there's some place to connect. Um, the book doesn't follow that structure exactly um, because my thinking was developing and I wanted the book, as I said earlier, to pull out, first of all, the focus that Ibn Taymiyyah gives to worship and then second of all to you know really underline how he uh, takes a, a utilitarian, I should say it's religious utilitarian, approach to uh, ethics. And that was not so clear in my when I taught the class because it was still developing and as, as something I've worked out in just the last couple of years and then it, it comes through in the, in the book. I would like to say just a bit about this um, word utilitarian. It's, it's quickly misunderstood as I'm saying Ibn Taymiyyah is like uh, John Stuart Mill and you know, modern utilitarian. So I add the adjective religious to utilitarianism. So he's not exactly like them insofar as, you know, religious goods are his, his um, most important thing. And, um, but within that framework, he's still, you know, it's utilitarian as I see it, or we might call it pragmatic, but it's more than just pragmatic. It's a sense of, 
of he's weighing up what's most beneficial for religion overall for the greatest number of people. And ultimately, God does what's good for God's self in Ibn Taymiyyah's thinking. So, yeah, that's that's the teaching and then my little exercise here on, on uh, utilitarianism. You ask about uh, what projects I'm working on, is that correct? Yeah, so that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and like the next, like current currently as well as the next five to ten years, what kinds of things are attracting your research interests? Before I got into the book in a serious way, I had, I've been working on questions around God's attributes and every time he is thinking, and I'll I'm going back to that um, slowly but surely. There's a lot there, uh, not only involving the theology of it, but how it worked out within his context and his interaction with uh, his contemporaries. And that will keep me busy uh, for some time. Uh, There's a lot of work to do in terms of how his heritage has been, or how his writings and his ideas have been received. And perhaps I dip into that some more uh, if there's time, but I really want to focus on uh, what he's doing um, in his own lifetime. And I'm, it's difficult working in any time he has writings because it's difficult to date, but, uh, date his works and, and get a sense of development. But I want to give that another chance. I want to work more closely on the works. We do know the dates of such that we perhaps can see some shifting and, and see how he's reacting to his context a bit more. So it's, it, it's a, Making more of a making more resources available for an intellectual biography, if that makes sense. Whereas to this point, most of yeah. our studies have been, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah's views on particular topic, and we take the all the text we can find on that topic, or at least a sampling of them, because there's so many, and we then um, we synthesize or we we construct an idea of what he said on on this particular topic. Whereas I'd like to work now more toward Let's let's find the differences between the texts and and what's may there is some movement in his ideas, in his development of his mm-hmm. ideas, his thinking. Yeah, and I think this book uh, lays a really great foundation for that in its content and its bibliography. So I'm excited to see what what comes next and what other kinds of ideas this book inspires. So thank you again so much for joining us, Professor Hoover, and I look forward to keeping tabs on your work in the future. It's been my pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was my conversation with Dr. John Hoover, Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Nottingham, about his exciting new monograph, Ibn Taymiyyah, published by One World Academic in 2019 as part of the Makers of the Muslim World series. Thanks for listening.